This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, 
and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. Welcome to episode 579 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back for the fifth time, Julian Pinot. Now, when the pandemic first reared its ugly head, I made a concerted effort to reach out to some of the greatest minds in wellness that I knew of and bring them to the show, to the point where I added an extra episode every single week, and I have since then, two years ago. One of those great people was Julian Pinot, and what I've wanted to do recently is circle around with those people so that we can have another wellness discussion. The idea is the last couple of years, obviously, we've been told about vaccines and masks and all these other areas, but the wellness, the underlying health, the physical health, the mental health, the fostering resilience in our population has been left out of most discussions. So Julian's perspective is incredible. He's originally from France. He lived in Holland for a while, but actually moved away from there when their mandates and lockdowns got too severe. He now lives in Brazil. So he has a very global international perspective. Aside from that, when it comes to the wellness space, he is a deep, deep thinker. And as you will hear, we go down many, many rabbit holes. So I urge you to listen to the entire conversation because it will make you question the way you think. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of 579 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I welcome back Julian Pinot. Enjoy. Well, Julian, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming back yet again on the Behind the Shield podcast. My, always my pleasure, whatever, man. Always good. <laughs> All right. So um, the last couple of times I think we did the interview, we found you in Holland, in the Netherlands. Yeah. So uh, where are we finding you today? I'm in uh, Rio de Janeiro. I moved to Brazil last June. And one of the main reasons I moved to Brazil is that in March, or was it was it like January, February, some shit like that? Uh, in Holland, they started to have curfews, nine o'clock at night. When I saw that, I was like, I'm out. And it was probably like January or February. And I was like, you know, like there hadn't been a curfew in Europe since the Nazis, right? Since Germany, World War II. I was like, you guys are gonna put curfews? Like I know European history, it does not end well. Like you are, and people, not realizing what was happening is like we have a history of let's put it this way authoritarian governments in Europe and people welcoming such a rate of civil liberties in Europe was to a degree was like I'm not staying here I'm not paying taxes to that government who has a full lockdown and a curfew at the same time I was like this is insane like you guys are giving up stuff if you think it's going to stay there you are completely nuts and so I was like, last January, February, I was like, we're out. 
So in March, we came here for vacation with my fiance, and then she was like, oh, I like Brazil. I'm like, good, we're moving. So in June, we moved, and everybody was like, oh, why are you moving? Because uh, that and everything, it's almost done. I'm like, next winter, they're going to do the same shit. And guess what they're doing? They locked down. So just to give you an idea what happened in Amsterdam, they locked down. So this is how. Uh, thank God I'm not a conspiracy theorist because otherwise I would blame Amazon on that. So they waited till two weeks before Christmas in Holland, in, uh, all over Holland, and then they shut down the country completely. All businesses outside of markets were completely shut down. Two weeks before Christmas without any warning, which means they kind of waited until all businesses had their stocks for, to sell for Christmas and then shut down everything, screwing every single business, small business there was in Holland. And then because PostNL, you know, like the post office was so overwhelmed with people buying online, they could not deliver the Christmas presents. So no one had Christmas gifts at Christmas because the post office could not handle the stuff because they never warned anybody. This is shit like that where you go, guys, like this is insane. Was that, was that last Christmas or this Christmas we just had? This Christmas, like a month ago. So the Christmas during Omicron where everything was getting better, it was more shut mild. Down. Shut down. Everything was shut down. Restaurant stuff, everything. Like anything, you know, nothing past five o'clock. And then all businesses shut down and everything. They all got screwed over completely with like what? They didn't make, they make too much money in the last two years so that we're going to screw them on Christmas too. Without warning anybody. It was crazy. And see, what, what's maddening to me is you see some countries that I thought were very progressive, like New Zealand, that seem to be pretty Australia. sensible in the middle of the road. Yeah, but, but New Zealand, you know, I think separate from Australia, New Zealand, I think, is like a, a different level when it comes to the environment, when it comes to, you know, health and things like that. Um, and they seem to be doing well. And then just recently, there was this knee jerk and they shut them all down and they started vaccine mandates. So, you know, I, I talk about the the highs of each country, you know, what, what it's got to offer. But, you know, there's, there's so many that I think have allowed their, their leaders to make really, really horrible decisions during this. But you know what upsets me the most with this is the more progressive the country, the worse the decision was, the more authoritarian. The, what upsets me with this is that the right side I've been saying that for years, that the left was suppressing speech, that they were more authoritarian than the right and everything. And at the time, you were like, oh, stop bitching, you're all crazy. And so far, they've been proven right on everything. Big tech is censoring apps, speech. Uh, you see what Twitter is doing right now. Robert Malone, the inventor of the mRNA vaccine, cannot talk about it without getting shut down. You have stuff where you go, there is no debate. This is not about science. Stop, stop talking about science, because apparently none of you know what it means. Uh, it is an insane time on that. And the more they are on the left they are, the worse the decisions, which I'm on the left. I, I guess I was. Uh, and, and I found that each country that I visited, the more progressive they were, the worse it got. Holland is very progressive, by the way. They're very structured people and very, uh, you know, blunt to the point of being rude and stuff like that. But if you look at their uh, social structure, it's one of the best they take care of their people, one of the best countries in the world to do so. They have a, a social network that is, sorry, a social net that is actually very, very, very good. And at first they were not too big on the lockdown and then before you know it, they shut down everything and screwed over businesses left and right. 
Like it doesn't matter. Now, what do you think the reason is for that? Because this is exactly my point. So when I look at Holland, maybe whether it's you know the legalization of prostitution, whether it's some of their drug policies, whether it's the p- pedestrianizing of the, a lot of their city areas, so that so there's a lot of you know exercise and cycling, and but then you have yeah, so you have this decision. So what when you have such a progressive, proactive kind of philosophy in a lot of decision making, why are we seeing some of these horrible decisions when it comes to this specific? I've element? seen it. The same thing in every country I've been to, and this is what I missed, is I did not understand how much a specific type of people hated their lives. This is what it comes down to. They hated their lives so bad, they waited for any excuse to let go of it. They just So what you see, really, and there was a book called uh, Bullshit Jobs, a uh, great book that everybody should read. Um, that was saying like, and we're talking like years back, um, what is that, like five, six years ago at least. And the point, uh, the first point of the book was um, a number that was outstanding that was showing that 50% of white colors were asked about their jobs. And uh, sorry, 100% were asked but uh, about their jobs. And 50% said that they could quit today and it would make no difference in their job or in the world they're, they're, they're in. So that their position in their own world had no meaning whatsoever. They could quit and it would make no difference whatsoever. Hence the name of the uh, book, Bullshit Jobs, because they were managerial positions, uh, you know, like what they call now white collar, which is, let's be honest, most of businesses in the Western world, since we don't produce anything anymore. So most people with those types of jobs felt like they absolutely had no meaning in their lives, right? And I, I, I missed how bad it was. There was a, um, there's a podcast with the owner of Own It and a guy from Belgium who was talking about mass hypnosis and what is the basis of mass hypnosis, which I, everybody should go see that podcast. It was very interesting. I'll find it and give you the link. Um, and the, the base of mass hypnosis throughout human history, not for the pandemic in general, was always that free-flowing anxiety that took on people and that had to be directed towards something, which is usually something was religion. Because if you take that free-flowing anxiety that comes from a lack of meaning into what you do, it was directly usually toward religion, which gives you, sorry, uh, which gives you a sense of meaning in what you do. So you let go of all religion like Western world is doing. You create a sense of a lack of meaning in people's lives through those bullshit jobs, and you end up with a free-flowing anxiety that has to be directed towards something. You know what that something is? And Albert Camus wrote the, the plague exactly about that, is you need an enemy and someone to blame. If you have that, your life has meaning. So the enemy was simple, there's a, there's a virus, and you need someone to blame. Well, that's easy. We're going to either get Trump, or we're going to get unvaccinated, or we're going to get whatever. But the point was that giving that option to people would allow them a new class war and that anxiety that they feel went away. Like in Austria, they were starting to talk, uh, they were, and they actually did it, it was a lockdown for the unvaccinated. A full lockdown for unvaccinated people. And uh, the guy from Unheard, that British journalist, went there and asked people, doesn't it bother you? And you had a perfect class war at play. You had white collar, so, you know, richer, more educated people literally saying it's their fault 
we are in where we are right now. So basically, they should all die. Do you know that even Chomsky said that? That unvaccinated should be put in camps and then fend for themselves. Chomsky said that on an interview. Okay, he's getting old. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I used to like the guy. He's getting old. But um, you saw that type of mentality into those people, which is really a class war. Lesser educated, you could tell more immigrants or, uh, you know, that have blue collar jobs who are like, I'm vaccinated, but hey, this is wrong. Every person that you would put on the highly educated, like not necessarily rich, but with more degrees or stuff like that, we're saying blame the unvaccinated. Even though it's been proven with Omicron that being vaccinated does not stop you from transferring the virus, which he asked to people. And all the answers were like, what? No, that's not true. Like to, to a degree, it's to me what I, what I miss with all this is how profoundly people hated their lives, how profoundly anxious, how profoundly they had a lack of meaning into their lives and they jumped on the first occasion they had to give their lives meaning. And suddenly it was like, I remember hashtag stay the fuck home. Like people forget about that one. But two years ago, it was everywhere. Stay the fuck home to what? Lockdown made no difference. We're still not talking about Sweden. Two years ago, when we talked about Sweden, like the head of epidemiology in Sweden said, herd immunity, lockdowns are not going to work. We're all going to get it at some point. So might as well keep the society open because it, that's unheard as well. I have the, the interview because it turns out that most likely natural immunity will be better than whatever we come up with. Like every single time it has happened in the past in human history. Two years later, Omicron is hitting. Guess what? They have studies showing that natural immunity is stronger than the vaccine. Hmm. That turns out closing society did not work. Turns out that the leading cause of death in the US between 18 and 45 for men is not even close to being COVID. It's overdose. It's drug overdose. Fentanyl having a, a big deal in that. So are we talking about any of that? No, we are not. Drug overdose killing anxiety through the roof, girls cutting themselves, uh, suicide went through the roof, drug overdose, alcoholism, abuse, all that stuff went in the world. Where are my good thinking progressive people when it comes to all that? Is it not, not a problem? And yet it isn't. We had two years proving that obesity, for example, is 80% of people in the ICU. We had two years to do something. No one said lose weight. No one within the government, within any of that, said lose weight. We had two years. In two years, you can lose weight, which would have saved the life of a number of people. And yet, no one says it because body positivity. So at some point, the, ser the serpent bit his own, his own tail. And it's, it's absurd. And so I've been pitching about it for two years. And now that Omicron is here, which is highly contagious, but not that virulent, uh, those good people, that used to wash their clothes every time they went outside to make sure they didn't have COVID um, are realizing that they, got, they get COVID anyway. So you torture your own kids, putting them in virtual education. Like I, these were stories of people feeding their kids through the door because they didn't want contact. And so how are you going to explain that to them a few years from now? Because your kid from eight to 10, not socializing, you screw him up for life. Like there's going to be consequences on the kids alone. Well, my progressive people that used to say it's all about the kids. So what about the kids? What about the, all those people we were supposed to say? 
minorities, drug addicts, kids, like all the stuff that was the Walmart of progressive before. Where are you now? Because all you're defending is all people, basically. Because let's be honest, most of the deaths were overwhelmingly over 70 or even 80 years old, which I don't wish them death at all. But I don't remember us spending so much time defending them before. And what about obesity that kills so many people? Like it's, it's the selective memory and selective outrage that just, just drove me crazy on that one. But what I missed out of all this is how profoundly people hated their lives, that they would jump on anything to have a change. So now you see in the US, you have a crisis of uh, work labor because millions of people quit their jobs. And there was a, a CEO of a large company saying that over 50% of these people, white, uh, white collar people, were not going to go back to work unless you let them uh, work from home. Like they hated the office that much. I think there's a reckoning that we have to do as a society toward like, even though well-off people hate their lives. That's the truth. And that's what we have to talk about is, do you all hate yourself and your life that much that you were willing to let go of any civil liberty like that? It's, that's what surprised me the most, honestly. And if you look at Australia and those places, it's, well, well there seem to be a majority of people that are actually agreeing to internment camps for people who had contacts with COVID patients. Not that they have COVID themselves. They were just in contact with people, even if they test negative. Because they were in contact with someone, they were sent to camp, internment camps, that the government says like a vacation spot. Turns out it wasn't. This is insane. You could write a book like this, no one would believe it, that in two years we would have done what, what, what we have done. No science, science fiction book would work written like this. Well, you and I spoke last time. I basically kind of assembled the Avengers <laughs> when the pandemic first hit, and I added an extra episode every single week. So this last, you know, almost two years has been three episodes every single week because I saw right off the bat, coming from a wellness background and being in the first responder profession, so seeing behind the curtain of what truly saves lives, um, that we needed good information. So whether it was yourself or Joel Salatin or Eric Goodman, I mean, all these people that are truly making people healthier, more resilient, were brought back on. And the thing that you said a second ago, I have been echoing this whole time. Um, if If this had been put in as... I want you all to assume that you are going to get COVID-19. Here's the restrictions we're going to do. We're going to lock down initially because we're not sure what it is. We're going to wear masks in public spaces. You know, maybe a little bit more education on, you know, which ones and when. Um, but, you know, but you build on, on the resilience. Two years, two years. Imagine the health differences that we would have made on the obesity. As you said, the mental health epidemic, all these areas and not only was it not talked about, it was suppressed. How dare you? How dare you discuss obesity? My three 300-pound grandmother just died, you know? I mean, it's like, it's, it's complete denial. And we, we could have pushed the needle so far in the right direction on all the other things that are killing us. Oh, the future as well. This is not the last time we have a virus, especially, we're not going to talk where the virus comes from, but it might not be fully natural, let's put it this way, which we're allowed to say now. I did podcast on that too, that at the time where you, uh, you could not say anything, I got blasted, not by everybody, but um, it might not be the last time we see something like that. And your grandma that weighed 300 pounds died because she weighed 300 pounds. 
Like we, we have, the point is saving lives. All right, 300 pounds is not a good thing. And it's not a matter of beauty or being sexually attracted to larger people. Don't care. Different stroke for different folks. Who cares? That's not what we're talking about. What you cannot say is that being obese is not bad for your health. So you have the right to an opinion on the internet, right? You can call me stupid, ugly, whatever you want. You have the right to any opinion you want on the internet, right? This is the way this works. What you cannot do is call me a rapist because that's an accusation. So opinion you can have, accusation you cannot. When you start to say obesity is not bad for your health, that you don't have the right to do. And so they can blame Joe Rogan for misinformation all they want. You have so many people on YouTube that are allowed to say that fat on your body has nothing to do with your health. I have a study that you can put uh, as a link that was, and that's been done over thousands of people and with a very, very high correlation between visceral fat and what is called somatic depression. So let me explain real quick what they meant with visceral fat. So there was a problem establishing a relationship between obesity and uh, depression. The reason for that is because obesity was based on BMI, you know, body max index, which is a complete bullshit way of looking at obesity because in that case, I'm obese. So that's the problem. So then you could take certain part of the population that were actually healthy, but from a BMI perspective, obese and see that they had no, uh, no uh, depression. On top of it, when it comes to depression, there's another problem with that, is you have two types of depression. There's many types, but you have two men. You have a somatic and a cognitive. The somatic is like your, your mind is fine, but your body is in freeze. The cognition is that your mind is in freeze, but your body is fine. And when you have the two, you have major depressive disorder, right? So imagine a freeze mode for your body and a freeze mode for your mind. Your spouse died, your body is fine, your mind is shit. Right? You're obese, your body is shit, but your mind can be fine. But so when your body is in freeze, it's called a somatic depression. So they started to test thousands of people with better criteria. The criteria was simple, waist to hip ratio and waist to height ratio. When they did that, so, and what they, they see is that the skin right here doesn't matter, the fat, the subcutaneous uh, fat under the, under the skin did not matter. What they linked, to an extremely high percentage with visceral fat and somatic depression. They were showing that when you carry a certain amount of visceral fat, so we can see that waist versus hips, your correlation of depression skyrocketed, uh, skyrocketed compared to people who did not have that. It's a nine-year study, right? So over thousands of people. So it was quite, you know, quite good. And one of the craziest stuff that we saw is that at the two-year mark, right, when we saw people who started here and at the two-year mark were developing um, pre-diabetes, this was the, the best indicator, over 90% of people that will develop major depression disorder. Pre-diabetes was a, was a dead-on marker for major depression disorder. By the way, MDD is the leading problem in the world, is the leading disability in the world is actually MDD. When you look at work, health conditions, all that stuff, NDD is the leading one in the world. You want to save life? Major depression disorder. That's your first stop. And prediabetes was a dead-on marker for that. So was visceral fat. So obesity and somatic depression. Why? Because obesity means what they call metabolic insults. 
diabetes or pre-diabetes in that case, you know, number of hypertension, all that stuff. Then you have a somatic somatic depression because your body is in freeze because you can barely move because everything is shutting down because a number of problems like that. But there were, this has been shown study after study after study. If you can just read, which obviously that's another problem, but if you just read, you cannot say that being overweight is not bad for your health. You do not have the right to say that. Yeah, well, especially with that kind of model you just gave us, it's interesting because I've had it explained to me the other way too, which is, you know, correct and correct. So um, there was uh, Johan Hari who talked about um, a study they did. I think it was in the UK, but anyway, they no, it was in, in America, excuse me. But they, they had this uh, weight loss study and they gave them IV therapy. So just all the nutrients IV. And the, all these people lost all this weight and they're kind of rock star of the group had lost, you know, a huge amount of weight. And then one day she started, you know, she fell off the wagon and started eating again. Um, and anyway, one of the kind of brighter members of the team said, well, let's, let's ask her about it. Let's try and figure out what's going on. So they, uh, they said to her, well, look, you know, when, when did you start eating? When, when was food an issue for you? And she said, oh, when I was, I forget now, I think it was eight or 12. Um, and he was like, okay, um, was there anything, traumatic that happened to you around that time and she, she was like yeah that was when my grandfather started molesting me so you had depression that created obesity which i think is also a huge issue so so whether it's the ill health well, going to the, yeah so so you've got this double whammy in her case in the back of her mind she didn't want to be attractive because that caused her to be molested you know what i mean so and then you, you tie that into what you said, the, the unhappiness, which I see, the rat race. I mean, we refer to it as a rat race. Then you create this kind of overreach that we're seeing. And I, I mean, I have never thought of it this way till you said it, but how easy is it to give up, give up a job that you fucking hate? Very easy. We'll just give you money, stay at home. So I'd never thought of it that way, but that is absolutely right. one of the reasons why this succeeded. The so the second the government says, stay at home, I give you money. Everybody jumped on it because before, but you have to understand also is like, this is us as a society that we are at fault. That's why I'm saying like, there's a reckoning coming because we have built our identity over certain capacity at work. Let's be honest, like the, it's never racism. It's never gender problem. It's none of that. It's always a race war. Uh, race war. It's always a class war. There is no race war. There is no gender war. There's always a, class war. And the class war has turned toward educated versus less educated, college versus before college, you know I mean, which is just another form of class war. And you see a feminine versus masculine really is dealt in that because the feminine is now is two thirds of uh, college is two thirds women. It's turning toward 70% women uh, within the next few years for 30% men because of, you know, more testing. So everything is turning into a a, a weird feminine versus masculine energy, but that is based first on the on the class war, right? Like it always is. But um, what was I going? Yeah. So if you see that, you see the, those higher educated people that love to tell people how to live, that had the life that they were telling to everybody else that was perfect. I have a great job. I'm a CEO or whatever. I have two PhDs. I make money. I have all this. And I look at my life and it's barren of meaning. And, but how can I give that up? First of all, I told everybody this was 
the life to have. And I was told by everybody this was the highest to have. I achieved what you told me to do. I'm 40 plus. I have the family and everything is built, is built around this job. And I need that money because otherwise my life crumbles within three months when you have that type of expenses and stuff like that, right? So how do you quit that job? You don't. How could you? Everything is based on that. By the way, you quit, you quit that job, you lose all your friends because they all at the same level you are. So if you quit your job, you leave this part of society, right? And then you're going to be some of the people you look down upon. Like that's how many people have the courage to do that? And by the way, you leave, you lose your job, you might lose your family too, because not everybody wants to change lives either that way. So how could they change lives? So then you lose meaning and then that anxiety, that free-flowing anxiety builds up over 10 years, 20, 40, 60. We thought we when did we start to basically all this? Like what the 80s? Remember Wall Street with Gecko? who became like a folk hero. How is Gecko a hero? He's in that movie, he's supposed to be the bad guy. And somewhere in the 90s, 2000, he became a hero. And I'm like, we are fucked, all of us. If that's a hero, we all screwed. But you could see where that guy becoming a hero tells you where we are society-wise. So when you become that guy who's suddenly assholes are supposed to be great guys, like Steve Jobs or whatever, suddenly we're worshiped for being assholes, not for being the, the leader that they were for being assholes, you go like, well, that's what. Anyway, that culture that led to people being miserable behind closed doors. Yeah, all it took was a spark and they like, stay at home, I give you money. And or even people that suddenly could stay at home did not have to go socialize with people they didn't like. Like, I, I'm, I take a, my job right now, I mean, a good part of my job is taking people off of pills, so their anxiety or depression. And I have a lot of private clients. So like that and a large per person of them are executives type right and i can tell you it's the same thing every time if it's not pills it's alcohol you know why because they hate everybody they work with they don't like the culture they within they have friends but their friends are also on pills also because they don't like x and x and x or their job or their they don't like the culture they're in. They don't like the world they are part of, going back to Bush's jobs. If they were to quit tomorrow, it would make no difference in the world. It's a hard life to lead. When you start to go in your 40s, you know this, you start to look at meaning. You can find it in family. You find it in different things, helping people. You find it in, but suddenly when you don't have that, when you, you turn in the 40s and you have a certain education, a certain amount of money, and you go like, yeah, and I'm, still feel like shit. It's even worse than in my 20s. At least in my 20s, I, I had hope. Now I'm in my 40s. Everything is set. I have nowhere to go but more misery till what? Till I retire and die? Like, that's, that's a hard thing to look at in the mirror every day. And on top of it, they're tired because they work 14 hours a day. They exercise like maniacs, but never. that's not health. That's just punishment because they hate themselves anyway. So that free-flowing anxiety, instead of going toward a form of punishment, whereas alcohol, drugs, or even training or whatever they were doing as a sympathetic fix, suddenly as a way out, there's a virus, there's unvaccinated people. The government is telling me uh, to stay home, they're going to give you money. How could they refuse? Like, don't get me wrong, no one annoys me more than them. But at the same time, I think it's a reckoning on the shift of values of Western society, we are we fucking this up. We have to look in the mirror and go like, this is not working. 
Yeah, well, I think that we've definitely allowed ourselves to be duped. You know, we're all, I mean, I, you know, look, look at what I believed was, was healthy, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Um, you know, the way to eat, the way to exercise. And, you know, it really, it really wasn't, you know, I mean, the nutrition was shit. It was bodybuilding that we were learning, not strength and conditioning. Um, nothing against bodybuilding. By the way, and steroids and everything, which is like, look at the evolution of that. Like everybody's juicing now. I'm the only dude in the gym who's not on the juice. It's amazing. I'm the oldest and I'm the only one not on testosterone. Yeah, me too. Me too. And I talk about it all the time because when you get experts on sleep and strength training and nutrition that show you you can naturally produce that. But, you know, my my audience, you know, the, the profession I was in, they're so sleep deprived, their hormones are wrecked. So they've really got one or two choices. Retire, which is what I did because I value my balls. <laughs> or, you know, keep going and then, yeah, you end up becoming an addict to, you know, exogenous testosterone, which is heartbreaking because now you're atrophying the very part of you that you identify as your manhood and you are literally going to be on that stuff for the rest of your life. And, the, you know, in right. some of the TBI... Can you that to people so they know that when you're on testosterone, your balls shrink? Oh, exactly. That's I what I'm saying. Most people don't know that. I don't think but they explain that. Them, but your balls will. Yeah. Yeah. So when you've got, you know, like I've got a friend uh, who's a Navy SEAL and, and you know, TBI is huge in that in that world. And I know he's I mean, one, one of the smartest guys I know. And he he takes that. But, you know, if you if you anatomically literally are not making it anymore because of damage, that's different. But if it's just stress, sleep deprivation, you can reverse those by taking ownership of your health and maybe even demanding a work week that doesn't kill you, which is one of the missions that I have. But like this is feasible like th this is a little bit the problem that i have also and then the medical profession to me is there's two two types of people that are going to lose out of the pandemic the most first the media because they're done like we'll never trust them ever again but secondly the medical profession who um they were given a certain amount of power. And at the time, two years ago, I said on a podcast, be very careful. You are the priests now. You were given the key to a lot of things. Don't, don't fuck it up because there's a large price to pay if you abuse that power. And of course they did. Um, but you see that with the medical profession where if I go, just being 48, if I go to a doctor, you put me on TRT regardless of my numbers. Right, but I haven't tested my testosterone numbers, but I'm fine. I can train the way I want. Like, I have no issue recovery and everything. Why? Because I eat well, sleep well, and, and all that stuff. But the, it is so easy now to go to our pills. It's a business first. So if you go see a professional, a medical professional, the answer will be pills, testosterone, stuff like that right away, because that's the easiest answer that there is. Because people don't want to be told, start to exercise, start to sleep, start to eat correctly, start to do all that. But... We have to see that as dangerous it is as a society to do that, to rely on drugs. Once you start, of course, TRT is going to make things better. You're going to feel better. You're going to process things better. Your organs even are going to be better off. But the problem is you never learn to fix the real problem in the first place, which you're not sleeping. So now you're going to use those drugs to work harder, sleep even less, and you're going to get away with eating worse up until... It doesn't work. So now what? You stop the drugs and then you learn a new lifestyle or you just up the drugs and that works for a while. And then you still don't exercise correctly. You still, because you don't need to, because the drugs are giving you the muscle that 
you need to to get from proper training, but you don't need to because you have the drugs. So you still don't know how to train properly. You still don't have to eat correctly because you're getting away with the drug and you're still not sleeping. And so now what? Now you, you have to add the drugs because, and then, and then, and then, and then, and this is where we see the, the stuff. And then after that, it's people in their 40s, but now it's people in their 30s. Now it's people in their 20s that are, that are starting on trend in the gym. I'm listening to some bodybuilding podcasts where they're talking about dosages on trend. Trend is one of the, I'm not good on steroids, but because all I know is from those bodybuilding podcasts, but they all talk about it the same way. This is by far, the stuff that carries the most side effects of all the steroids out there. And it's very, very, very strong and normally done for pro bodybuilders or pro powerlifters or stuff, stuff like that, trend And you see kids at the gym using huge dosages of trend just to gain muscle, where at 20, all you have to do is train correctly. Like, this is where we're heading. Maybe it's the fall of the Roman Empire. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe as a society, we reach that point that every society reaches where we are on the way down. Maybe this is what this is, but the men were not winning. And I, I mean, not that I really truly hope so two years ago, but it would have been such a good moment to talk about losing weight and getting healthy and zero. It's not even that what surprised me the most is that was never even a conversation that did not even enter the conversation. We could not even say that 80% of people in the ICU were obese, or at least uh, grossly overweight. That, 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 was that is not a good sign. Yeah, it was yeah, heresy. Because I was saying that at the beginning, and it was like, you know, the, the, the media was like, how, how dare you say that? And not to me personally, because not many people listen to this, but <laughs> compared to Fox News and CNN and all these great outlets that we have. That was sarcasm, by the way. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, but it's, it's you know, I've said this so many times. Imagine if we had looked at, let's start with schools. Forget you write off anyone who's 18 and above and you just start with our school children. If we gone into the schools, taken away the fast food, taken away the soda machines, put the, you know, put real food back in. Oh, how could you do that? Well, that's what you did until a few decades ago. Schools cooked for their children. So it's not a new idea. You just go back to that. You put PE back in. I've actually got a guy that, um, made the documentary the motivation factor i don't know if you've seen that but if you have oh my goodness Julian, you need to watch that it's incredible but in the 50s like california that's one school la sierra high school had this incredible pe program and they were churning out like athletic phenoms and even their least fit was incredibly fit you know and because they had a very very an excellent pe program that's focused on physical education and you know and fitness and strength and conditioning rather than sports so you make everyone fit. And then if you want to play basketball, go play basketball. You're already prepared for it. Um, but we didn't see any of that. And then look at the transportation. You know, the, the chemicals that are sprayed in our food and the radiation, then it's transported thousands of miles, you know, processed through one or two plants. And we could have just bolstered all local farmers to grow organic food in, you know, and then obviously the outside could supply the big cities. I live in the middle of Florida. It's beautiful arable land here. We can grow so much, but none of that happened, you know? So that's, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the show Dope Sick that's on Hulu. It's about the Oxycontin crisis, but you talk about a parallel. No, I read about this a lot, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, but you, you've got this company that only cares about profits. I mean, truly yeah. doesn't care about human lives. They're pushing it and lying to these doctors. So it does a very good job of kind of educating the viewer. And a lot of these doctors were duped into thinking it was safe. 
Some weren't. Yeah. The owners of the pill mills surely, surely certainly weren't. But and then, as you said, it starts working. It's not working. I need more. I need more. I need more. And then you have this this opioid epidemic versus addressing the underlying issue, which is preventative medicine, not reactive medicine. And the, the opioid crisis was fascinating. You know when it truly started? When the medical profession listed pain as one of the four uh, leading cause of whatever. It was, it was the fifth, the fifth um, vital sign, I think they <laughs> called it. And that was this right. company. That was Purdue that came up with that. And they came up with the little pain scale that I use as a medic. I called it the smiley face scale because it was, it was ridiculous. But that was from them as well. Those were both marketing tools, not science. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was never science. And the pharmaceutical industry has been shown to manipulate uh, studies as they want to say whatever they want which is happening right now, by the way, that was shown even within the CDC and stuff like that. But um, they manipulated like those, yeah, but it was Merck and uh, Oxycontin, right? It was Merck, Oxycontin, or was it? No, it wasn't Merck, it was, which one was Oxycontin? Um, the name just fell out of my head. I just had it in my head. Um, yeah, me too. Oh my I goodness. was looking at it, it's not Merck, it's the other one. Anyway, um, yeah, I, but I didn't see the documentary, but I saw that the, the doctors were, uh, we are told that it was not, you know what? Oh, I remember it was about Vioxx. That's the one. And Vioxx was Merck. And uh, they manipulated the data of the studies that they were, that they were giving to say that um, Vioxx had the same effects of certain painkillers without the stomach issues. And it took them uh, five years to show that because they had different studies that they buried with, uh, the, the head of science at Merck saying like, this is a very good product for us or whatever. Uh, but it lasted like a good four years or five years until they come up with a study saying like, yeah, it might give heart issues, maybe. In the meantime, I think it was 60,000 people who died of, uh, of Vioxx before of heart issue, before it was pulled by the, by the CDC. And in the meantime, they had to pay a fine uh, of whatever it was at $5 billion, something like that. But in the meantime, they made $12 billion off of Vioxx. So like, the whole thing was insane. And it was exactly the same story with OxyContin. They were completely manipulating the data to say that it was either not addictive. Yeah, painkillers are not addictive. That, that's a good one. And that it had no uh, specific effect on people and stuff like that. At the same time, I'm a bit... Um, dubious about so many doctors being lied to and none of them asking certain questions when seeing the results on their patients. But that's another problem altogether. Yeah. Well, the company was called Purdue. What was interesting, um, firstly, the FDA approved a label saying it was uh, either non-addictive or less addictive. I forget what it was. And and there was also a... Yeah. And there was a, a graph that they were giving to all these doctors. And you imagine like a spike from an opiate where you get the kind of um, psychoactive um, impact of it and then it dips down. Well, they actually adjusted this graph where it would go like 10, 20, 30, let's say it's an inch apart. And then it goes, you know, the higher numbers, it's it's like a millimeter apart. So they made what was a, a big peak and a trough look like a very gentle arc. So they skewed the graph to, you know, so so yeah, I mean, there were definitely many, many tricks that they use to try and distract and get the, the confidence of the physicians. So yeah, I mean, some absolutely knew exactly what was going on. They made millions out of their, their practices from it. But I think 
you know, the one example they use in the film is just a rural doc who, you know, trusts the medicine he's given, trusts the F- FDA to, to approve or disapprove. And, you know, but then as he starts seeing it, not only does he start um, realizing it in his patients, in this particular story, he himself gets addicted as well. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like semi-fictionalized, but I mean, it's, it's, it represents everything. And anyone in the first responder profession, the medical profession, we've seen it. The, the knock-on effects of that opiate crisis we're seeing to this day. And I've had people that have, you know, survived because I've given them Narcan and I pull yellow sheets over tens and tens and tens of them that, that didn't survive. So it's a real deal. And, and when you look at during this whole couple of years, ultimately we were asked to, to trust the two least trustworthy types of people in the world, drug companies and politicians, you know, and look what happened. We got duped yet again. Is the vaccine a symptom suppressor? Is it, is it helping? Yeah. I mean, my physicians say, yeah, exactly. But is it, is it truly a vaccination as far as true immunization? No. And that's a shame. We all wanted it to be, but the, what we were told. It didn't have to be that. It could have been just a symptom reducer, just like other medication could have. Like, can you tell me what to do if you contract COVID right now? Is there a way? Like, your grandmother is 60. You're a bit, you're a bit worried. She just got COVID. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I hear of therapeutics, but I haven't heard of one that are like, James, this right, works so, pretty much every single time. But, but people will right, hop so on about... So those pills are coming. They're still not here. They're coming. By the way, it's, those uh, pills are coming from Merck. And from what I understand, they have the exact same effect as ivermectin, which I find weird. But since ivermectin was produced by Merck as well. Anyway, that's a longer story. But um, conspiracy, but whatever. <laughs> but until we get those, so it's going to take us, what, two and a half to get the pills. By that time, Omicron is just the flu anyway. But to this day, we don't know what to do if you get COVID. It's stay at home, right? Don't die. And please don't go to the hospital. It's insane that two years later, we still don't know what to do, except get vaccinated. Yeah, but turns out you're going to get it anyway. And you're going to, you can transmit it anyway. And so why does it have to be only vaccine? This is where I got pissed. Where I was like, all right, this is corruption at its finest. There's other things to do than just vaccines. Well, what pulls it together? So I had a, a friend of mine, Steve Davis, and he's a battalion chief in Orange County, and he got fired for not enforcing a, a list that had unvaccinated people on that was supposedly going to be disciplined. Um, but, you know, as we start getting in, of course, he's, he's fresh and angry and everything. He starts talking about ivermectin and all this shit. And I'm like, the place where it pulls everyone together is back ground zero, which is underlying health. Say you are one of the two camps. Say you're anti-vax. Well, your underlying health is really fucking important because that's all you have is your immune system. Say you are pro-vax. Your body's immune response to whichever vaccine you chose to try is also directly related to the health of your immune system. So, you know, while these people, like you said, you know, the vaccine is still the thing and the masks and that it's, nothing has changed. The only truth... Uh, the that doesn't cloth mask don't work. The CDC just said that. So. Yeah, well, no, I mean, we've all trust me from from my from my professions where we actually wear masks for a living. We all know damn well what works and what doesn't. But the the only truth in all of this is that your underlying health will determine your outcome, not only of COVID, but 
your chance of getting heart attacks, strokes, autoimmune disease, insert disease here. Yeah, mental health issues, everything. So, you know, that's the thing. No matter where these kind of topics go, it all circles back to having a healthy nation. You touched on Sweden earlier. I, I remember, you know, being enamored by their stance on it, despite all the stuff that was happening from the rest of the world. And they were, they ended up being fine. Of course, they didn't go unscathed. They lost people like everyone was going to. But a common denominator with Scandinavia is they have incredibly healthy people in their country because of their philosophy on movement, exercise, and overall wellness. Yeah. And there was, uh, going back to prediabetes and stuff like that, visceral fat is one of the leading indicators of health. If you look at what they call again, metabolic insulin, so all of that, you know, like the high blood pressure, the prediabetes, everything, visceral fat is a leading predictor of those issues every single time. It, I'm sorry, but on that one, it's not rugged science. Waist to hip ratio. Don't get fat. Like, I'm sorry, like, I can't say it any other way. Like, if you get fat, everything starts to go down the drain. Like, it's been proven so many times. It's been proven that exercise works better than Zoloft for depression. Like, they all talk about science and studies. How many of them do you need? Like, I got all of them in the strong fit world. It always comes down to the same stuff. Prediabetes, depression. Uh, visceral fat, prediabetes. Like, it always comes down to that. It's just like the size of your waist is going to tell us a lot about how you're going to feel. <sighs> the Greeks talked about it. Plato talked about the stomach being like the Senate. Like, come on, fellas. Like, it's not like they start to talk about science to where we call that drowning the fish in French. You know, you can drown a fish, you just make it spin fast. Then you can't get oxygen out of the way. You can actually drown a fish. Just make it, make it go fast in circles. So that's what we call drowning the fish in French. Is they talk about science all the time, but that's not true. There's plenty of studies right there. It comes down at the end to that a weird cultural war about very, very sheltered people who never had to face much and who are talking about others like it's their mission in life to help the weaker without truly caring about the the consequences. I deal with obese people because I help them lose weight. You know what they tell me? They feel horrible. Their feet are hurting when they walk. Their lower back is always blowing up. They can't sleep well in certain positions. If they sleep on their shoulder, their neck is fucked the next morning. Like that's the reality of being too, of being overweight. There's physical components of that. You feel like shit. You cannot tell me that you weigh 400 pounds and you don't feel like shit. You can't breathe, first of all. If I talk to you, I know you're gonna go <laughs> have the conversation. Water retention is through the roof. It hurts. That's not true. That's not, we have to stop with this. We have to stop with this. It's not true. Talk to people that are obese. Have a real conversation, not the bullshit like, you know, black square on your Instagram that doesn't cost you a thing. Like real conversation. Help them lose weight. Deal with their, with their trauma and stuff like that. Not a, I'm not saying everybody is having weight because they're lazy or eat too much or whatever. Some is why because they can't get the nutrition in order. Some have deep trauma. It doesn't matter. Their life is hell. When you're twice the body weight you should be, your life is hell. You're hurting everywhere. How about we truly, we don't bullshit around and we actually try to help? Because trust me, 
those metabolic insults have dire consequences. And lifespan is one of them. They die younger. Sorry. Well, we see that, you know, I wrote about this even in the book. The number of patients that my ugly face was the last thing they saw, or, you know, maybe they were already gone by that point, but I'm still standing over them. And, you know, we, we had the tube down the throat and we had the pads on their chest and, you know, we've stopped CPR and given all the drugs. And then at the end, when we're doing our paperwork, someone hands us like a garbage bag full of medications. And yes, in the doctor's office, when they do the, you know, the blood pressure check, their numbers were probably lower. But just this is exactly what we're talking about. The number, the, the metric was lower, but their body is still dying. Their body is chronically inflamed. They, their heart is, you know, full of fluid and just like you're saying. And so all we do is we create the chronic illness that becomes, you know, the, the true drug epidemic, whether it's mental illness, whether it's physical illness, but they are dependent on these drugs. And there's never, hardly ever, unless you're in a functional medicine practice, something like that, a discussion of, all right, well, maybe, maybe we need this just to stop you stroking out. But we're immediately going to start a plan of weight loss. And this is, this is when we want to start weaning you off these, these meds. The excuse, okay, but this is the excuse they've been using for everyone now. We need this too so you don't have a stroke right now. We need the depression pills so you don't jump out of the bridge right now. Okay, that's true. That's 1% of people taking that drug. Whether antidepressants or prediabetes or whatever, this is 1% of the people. It's like people with statin medication. Like, well, otherwise your heart is going to stop. 1% of them, 99% are people that are pre-whatever, right? Pre-jumping on the bridge, pre-your heart is going to stop. That's not true. That was true at first, and that's a bullshit they sold us to come up with a drug and charge money for it. And then from there, they gave it to the actual 99%, which is if you don't take the drugs, you're going to end up in that place, which is not the same conversation. That conversation about drugs stopping people from jumping off the bridge is a not a bullshit one, but it's a. That's not what is happening. Most people on drugs, like so. Let me at least talk about the people I know, those executives that work fourteen hours a day. The reason they take the anti-depression or the anti-anxiety drugs is simple, so they can work more. It has nothing to do with not jumping off the bridge. It's so because they feel like shit because they don't sleep, overwork, all that stuff, and they can't recover from the life that they have. So what do they do? They take pills that allow them to not go, you know, to have such a wide range of things, stay in the center, recover better so that you can perform at your work more. You know what the equivalent of that is in sports? It's called steroids. That's why they take juice so that they can recover faster, so they can do more work to increase performance. Most, not all, but most of those anti-depression, anti-exit drugs are taken with the same intent as people taking steroids for sports to improve performance. It has nothing to do with not jumping off the bridge. Some people, yes, most people, that is not true. You just don't like your life, but guess what? Get in better shape, get meaning into your life, better shape physically and mentally, which means find meaning. And in a large, large percentage of those cases, that depression will go away. It's either somatic and cognition. And in both cases, you're just not healthy physically or mentally. But the idea that you need those drugs not to jump off the bridge, in most cases, that's just not true. It's just not true. And exercise has been shown to work better anyway. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, even when you're at the end, of it, it still doesn't work. Like you are, you know, so sick now and those meds still don't care. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah. yeah so you still want to jump two years from now because what happens when you reach the maximum dosage you can take? 
Because that anxiety is going to keep on building because I got news for you. That like steroids, it works at first and then you get to the next stage and then, then what? Right, so the problem with taking drugs is always the same. You lost your motivation to learn. So they're always going to give you the same argument. You take the drugs, you start putting on the win and from there you learn to change your life. But nobody does because you lost the motivation to change your life because you don't feel the pain anymore because with those pills, you don't feel anything. You don't feel bad, you don't feel good either, but you don't feel anything. So why would you change your life then? You don't feel anything. Without feeling that there's a problem in your life, why would you change it? Since now I can go back to work and work even more, maybe make more money. You have no imperative to change your life when you're on those drugs. So they will tell you, well, yeah, but I'm just helping you so that you can start changing your life. Bullshit, bullshit, that's not true. That is not what is happening. What is happening is, you got on those drugs, you have no reason to change your life, which means five years from now, you're on drugs in the same state you were five years ago. Except now, you can take more drugs. So they shift your drugs, hopefully finding a better one or more drugs, more side effects, and then and then what? Yeah. Well, even even with the like the blood pressure meds, perfect example. You know, if if the right. if the doctor gives you that and you go in and your blood pressure is normal, where's that desire then to start watching what you eat and exercise? Well, we fixed it. You're good. 130 over 90. That's close enough. You know, and it's not because and then it, you end right, up with James Gearing. I'm telling you why you're supposed to fix it. Why would I? My blood pressure is normal. So you're telling me I have to sacrifice the donuts or whatever it is that I like to, to eat and then this and that? Well, my blood pressure is normal. I have no motivation to do so. I can just take drugs. Because, yeah, but the doctor is not explaining to you that in two years, those drugs won't work anymore. It's like, well, I just take more. I'll take a different one. Or, because that's what doctors are telling you. Don't worry. They come up with great drugs now. So, which is, But that's not true. The side effects. It's a trade-off. There's no free lunch here. It's a trade-off. When you take those drugs, there's a trade-off. There's side effects. There's you not changing your life. And then, so the idea that we're going to help people in that second, but then they're going to change their life over time, it, that's, that's a cop-out. That's just you not wanting to take responsibility for screwing up an entire generation society in that case. That drug culture has to stop. And by the way, I won't put it just on the doctors. Uh, for people, I'm sorry, but you have to kick your own ass too a little bit. You have to get your nutrition in order and you have to start exercising. I'm sorry, you can. I don't care how heavy you are. I can put you on a bicycle. I can make you do a little bit every day. We can stop drinking the soda. We can do that very slowly. No one says you have to do fast. I'm sure you tried 10 different diets that were far too restrictive and that did not fit you anyway. And so that's why you quit and gain the weight back. I know that story. I've talked to so many people like that. That doesn't mean there's not a way to do it. That's all. You just did it incorrectly. That's all. Maybe the guy who was trying to help you didn't know what he was doing. That happens as well. Maybe it's on him. It's not that it's not possible. You just didn't do it correctly. I'm not saying the shit isn't hard. It is very hard to lose that much weight because your body is shutting down. What I'm saying is it's extremely unhealthy to be where you are and we need to help you get better. And some of it, maybe not all of it, but some of it is your responsibility. Some of it is you not drinking Coca-Cola. You don't need to. I'm sorry, you can give me whatever bullshit you want. You don't need the soda. You don't. You don't. You can do something. You can walk a little bit. You can go on a bicycle. But even if we start with nutrition, you don't need the caffeine. You don't need the sugar. You don't. So let's start with those two. No caffeine, no sugar. Yeah, you like coffee. All right, start with decaf. Or at least only have two, 12 cups a day. So that you can fucking sleep at night. Right? Stop having carbs at dinner that 
drought you and then you can't sleep after that. Fix your sleep. There are ways to do it. If you don't know, something called the internet. The, I mean, the internet. I'm saying that, but let's be honest. Like, in any percentage shit anyway. But um, stop the sodas. Like, just, I'm not saying be good. I'm saying do better. That's all. Good and bad is very dangerous as a mentality because who's judging what good is? It's it's more it's a it's a goal line it's it's a pose that keep moving if you go with good and bad you can so you can never succeed with good and bad all you can do is better that's it if you're doing a tiny bit better then you're doing awesome it's better than being on a couch and not doing anything as long as you do better we're going somewhere right but we have to stop with that zero or one oh I can lose weight or it's not dangerous or whatever people need deserve to hear the truth, which is called hard facts of certain things, and then be given the possibility to do better. And then we move on from there. But don't go with good and bad. Let's just do better, right? Stop the soda. How about we start with that? It's caffeine and sugar. And who knows what else? And by the way, when I say sugar, I wish. It's not even sugar. They had some kind of a beet uh, system. They don't even use cane sugar anymore. It's some kind of a beet process thing that is even worse than sugar. You thought sugar was bad. What they found better is that new thing that they put in everything. And High fructose think, corn syrup. They have worse than that now. There's the next batch oh, really? coming. Like I said, yeah, 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 they have worse than that now. Uh, because they do that shit, but with a beet and something else. Um, like, stop that. Stop the candy. Stop the, the soda. Like, you don't need it. That's not true. So there are things you can do. And again, I'm not saying be good or bad. I hate that black versus white mentality. We're not saying that. We're saying better. That's all. That's all. Just do better. A little bit better today than yesterday. That's it. That's how you win, man. And it's not flashy. It's not worthy of Facebook. You can't put your two weeks update and you lost 30 pounds. Nah, not going to work like that. You're going to start by, you want something funny about, about sleep? Because that's a lot of what I do. I have people sleeping better. You know what happens? They wake up at four in the morning with their eyes wide open. And they'll go like, I can't sleep more than four hours a night. I'm like, yeah, because now I'm giving you the amount of sleep that you had in eight hours, in four hours. And guess what? You can't handle the volume. So you wake up at four hours after four hours of sleep like this and you don't know what to do. And it's going to take me three months to go from four to six and probably another three, four months to get you to seven, eight because you're not capable of eight hours of full sleep right now. I can bet you most people listening to us are not capable of sleeping an hour of good sleep. It's crazy. I do that on like simple question. Do you wake up in the morning less tired than when you go to bed? 60% of people listening to me will say, no, I wake up more tired than when I go to bed. All right. How about we start with that? How about we fix that? There are ways to fix it. How about we let go of the soda and the caffeine? Like have coffee, but at least get rid of the candies and then the soda, how about that? Like it's doing better is not that hard. If you stop bullshitting yourself, doing better is not that hard, but you're gonna need a little bit of responsibility toward yourself as well. Sorry. Well, you're talking to a very sleep deprived audience at the moment. So I'm always looking for any new kind of philosophy or uh, you know, success when it comes to sleep quality. And I've had a lot of people from the sleep medicine world on. Now I know the I think our last conversation, if if I'm not mistaken, the one before was when you were really kind of diving into nutrition and taking away the carbs with the protein consumption. So talk to me, you know, the, everyone listening now needs better sleep, myself included still. So 
Right. So what you to get good sleep, you need to go on the parasympathetic side of the nervous system. The ner it's a complicated. When we go into nervous system, it's very complicated. So I'm going to have to oversimplify. Don't start to nail me on the on the technical stuff. I know I'm oversimplifying. So um, uh, nervous system, you have the parasympathetic and the sympathetic. The sympathetic is known as a fight and flight. It's not that simple, but for now, let's leave it there. On the other side of that, which is uh, triggered in uh, the, the highway of information of the parasympathetic nervous system, is the vagus nerve. You might have heard of it, right? Right. So that one, the vagus nerve, the parasympathetic nervous system, so the whole thing, is the one that's going to give you good sleep. Now, it's not quite that simple. So for example, REM sleep is more an expression on the sympathetic. Deep sleep is more on the parasympathetic. But basically, to go to bed and have a good, uh, good sleep, you need to be more toward the parasympathetic side. It's fairly obvious. If you get into a major fight with a wife before bed, you're not going to sleep well. You know what I mean? Right. So that means that any sympathetic reaction is basically like a major fight with, with the wife. So... If we look into that, we're going to look at what triggers a sympathetic reaction. Well, it turns out caffeine is one. Turns out carbohydrate is another. And then the higher the carbohydrate on the list, the worse, the, the greater the sympathetic response. So that means that sucrose is going to have a much higher sympathetic response than fructose, let's say. So, but what we're trying to do is to limit the sugar completely before we're going to go to bed. Sounds obvious. I know people have candy right before bed. That might help you crash because it happens that the carbs allow you to lever, lower your adrenaline levels. But guess what happened three hours later? They pick back up. So if you have a lot of carbs before bed, it's going to trigger certain things like lowering the adrenaline level. And it can help with like serotonin and stuff like that. But all you're doing is finding a pill to put you to sleep. Three, four hours later, all this comes back up and then you can't sleep. And I got this for you, four hours is not enough. I know some of your people will go, really? Yes, really, three, four hours is not enough. So the key is to not just fall asleep, the key is to stay asleep. Can you wake up in the middle of the night and go back to sleep in a calm, peaceful way? Or do you start to go like, oh my God, like your brain starts working and, 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 and now it's 30 minutes to go back to sleep. Right? All those are indication of a sympathetic reaction. The sympathetic reaction also limits digestion, right? So that's going to come into play with the carbohydrates at dinner. First of all, carbohydrates at dinner are going to pump the sympathetic reaction, which we don't want for sleep. But on top of it, it's going to limit your digestion for physiological reasons that I don't have the time to explain right now, but it's a simple fight and flight response. If the bear is coming at you, you need the blood, not in your stomach to digest, you need the blood in the muscles. So these simple reactions like that, the higher the sympathetic reaction, the more the blood goes toward the muscle, which makes sense from the survival capacity. So we need the blood in the stomach digestion. We need the parasympathetic side. And guess what triggers the vagus nerve on one side and the parasympathetic on the other? Protein, saturated fats. So that's what we want at dinner. We want protein, saturated fats, mostly toward the protein, by the way, that's going to put you on the parasympathetic side and will help you sleep better. Carbs trigger a sympathetic response. You don't want that before bed. This works every time. It's just going to require you to let go of your habits a little bit, but this works every single time. So, so a dinner would be, for example, a steak or chicken, but rather than having potatoes or veggies. rice, you just have veggies. Veggies don't count. 
drop the rice, drop, drop the carbs. And don't tell me you need the carbs for muscles. 105 kilos, right? I have carbs, I have fruits, and usually when I train. I'm mostly on fast during the day and protein at night. So no, a lot of that stuff is just, it's just easier, like glycogen level of stuff is just easier with carbs. A lot of the stuff that is being sold to you is just easier, easier, faster, easier. Do you get glycogen levels high, uh, higher with carbs? No, you just get them faster. That's all. So it's a lot of that. Those are tricks. And a lot of studies were done with if you take steroids, fuck yeah, you can get away with a lot of carbs. Guess what? Sleep is going to get impacted as well. There's a number of things like that. For sleepies, you're going to have to learn to not introduce high sympathetic reaction too close to bedtime. So you leave work and you just watch someone die in front of you. I'm pretty sure it's a rough night of sleep. Right. So what do we do to help you come back on the other side? So why? Because watching people die, that's a sympathetic reaction. So I mean, physically, I need to bring you back to our being calm. That's where nasal breathing, some exercises are good like that so that I can just calm you down so that you can sleep. Because if you stay like this, thinking about it, it's going to be rough. Well, so there's two types of way to go toward the sympathetic. You have this more than two types, but you have two types, like your environment and you have the food. Both can send you into, into sympathetic. At night, don't be on your phone. Don't listen to Trump before you go to bed. Don't have, don't have an argument about Trump with your wife before you go to bed. Uh, when you have dinner, socialize. Socialize is various nerve activation. Have a conversation with the family. Enjoy dinner. Chew your food. Smell it. Make it an experience like we used to as a society. Dinner was a big thing, was a family thing where people talk. They're not on the phone. They talk. Phone, all that stuff. Sympathetic, 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 especially like scrolling on Instagram and all that stuff. Have dinner. No work after dinner. No phone. Fucking read have dinner, protein, some fats, veggies, read, no work, no phone, no social media, no social media, no social media. I'll say it again, no social media. <laughs> it will drive you crazy. Like you, you've been there when suddenly you have that politician or that dude that says something and now you jack them for 30 minutes. Yeah, my feed's groomed to the point where I, if anyone mentions Biden or Trump, then I, I kind of mute them. And so it ends up being this kind of positive group, you know what I mean? Because I have to. All that other stuff is not going to change the world. It's not going to make a dent in the it world. It makes zero difference. By the way, what's the difference between the last two? They're both like ass. There's perception. no difference. There's no difference. A different color tie. That's it. Two assholes. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I was about to say just different perception of the asshole, but at the end, they do the same job. Um I mean, so all those things matter. Like you need to unplug. You need to go to other parasympathetic sites. So those are habits you can gain easily. They do require you to do it though. So that means cut the carbs, cut the sympathetic fixes, dinner on. So nutrition-wise and behavior-wise, don't get angry. Don't watch, you know, cut the, cut the phone. Cut that fucking phone anyway. Uh, get off social media, especially at night. Uh, no blue light, get off the computer, like do all, it works, it works. And by the, and again, when we start to talk sleep, is it going to be fixed in two weeks? I got news for you. I had so many of my clients that would sleep four hours a night of quality sleep 
because that's all they could do. And it took them months to build up to six to seven hours. Yeah, well, I've been that's retired. For, I'm sorry, I was going to say, I've been, I've been retired three years and I'm still working through you know, kind of overcoming the damage of 14 years on shifts. So that is a long, long process. It's still an ongoing the, work the in shift progress. Is the worst thing because you fucked up your circadian rhythms. That takes a while. So there are tricks for that, but it relates to light and stuff like that. Like it's the, the night shifts, that's even worse. Yeah. Well, I do the, the light bathing, you know, the moment the sun rises, I'm out on my porch getting the sunlight on my, my eyes and exactly. you know, all that kind of thing. And at night shedding certain lights and everything, but that's because, and that's not even the only way the body knows circadian rhythm. That's the major way, but that's not even the only way. Like th those night shifts, oh man, they are hard to get from. So don't think for a second, two weeks of no carbs at dinner is going to give you a good sleep. And at first you might feel worse because you're actually sleeping intensely. But that means that you wake up like this suddenly, you can't go back to sleep. We had that happening many times. None of this shit is easy. I got news for you. None of this is easy. Yes, but you need to tell that too. It's not it's going to take two weeks. The problem is never what you have to do. The problem is timeline. People think, and that's almost whether strength training or sleep or whatever, what you think is six weeks means it means six months, hopefully. It's always that. Whenever people want a strength program six weeks, I'm like, six weeks? You don't even know how to squat in six weeks. It's, you mean six years, maybe. But six months, yeah, we're going somewhere. But that's it. Like that idea that you're going to make real progress, true progress in six weeks is a pipe dream. Your timeline is wrong. It's not six weeks, it's six months. We have to start there, I think, because you're being sold bullshit. No, I was going to say, no one is more guilty than the fitness industry at that. So, yeah, the, the you know, abs in seven days bullshit. Um, but no, I love, I love the idea of choose your heart. So, I mean, because I think that's it. I had, I had a guest a while ago that said the problem with, uh, you know, a lot of people is they're scared to be tired. And I'm like, you know what? That's a great way of looking because it is. We don't die from a CrossFit workout, from a sled workout, whatever it is. It, just, it just sucks. You know, you feel like you die, but you actually didn't. I got a picture of me lying on your asphalt a few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, choose your heart. So, again, do you want to put the work in, which I'm doing right now. I'm doing the, the knees over toes program at the moment to, to address some of my knee issues. I'm actually interviewing Ben on, Tuesday, on uh, Thursday. Um, but you know, that sucks. Like it doesn't feel good to, to lunge with a knee that clicks and everything, you know, but what's the alternative surgery, opiates, anti-inflammatories. That's a hard, I don't want to deal with the obesity. What's, what's worse putting in that time, cutting out that soda or being 300 pounds and navigating every single minute of your life out of breath, fatigued, sore, you know, so I love that. Choose your heart. It's either way, it's going to be fucking hard. So really think okay. about which heart is actually going to give, you know, give you something back in return. And when you say choose your, exactly, choose your heart. And remember, when you're 300 pounds, you have 200 pounds to go. Can you imagine? Like, see how you feel at 300? Well, imagine putting 200 pounds on top of that to get to 500. I'm 230, 225, 230. That means that you weigh 300 pounds. You're going to put me of fat and water on you. On top of that, I'm going to be sitting on your shoulders. Do you imagine what that means? That you're not going to feel good. Let me put it this way. There's a lot of people that would struggle to deadlift to 225. You know what I mean? Once. Right. Put that on your shoulders. Walk around. You'll carry. Mm -hmm. 
like like and that shit speeds up it's like it's an insane amount of weight and that shit doesn't slow down it speeds up like it takes you less time to go from 3 to 350 than it took you from 250 to 300 most people don't know that they think it slows down it speeds up it's easier to get fat you eat more digest, carbs are very easy to digest or in that case not digest just turn into fat like your body gets very good at it it's like this is a this is a road to hell we just don't want to say and i don't want to make people feel bad about it but they need to know what comes next i we had that discussion of, over surgeries people choosing surgery over exercise and i'm like do you think like you do surgery on your knee or your back or whatever and then that's it that's the end of the conversation Three years from now, five years from now, if you're lucky, the same pain will come back because you haven't changed your movement patterns. So that knee of yours, yeah, you're gonna do the same shit except five years from now. Except now you had one year of rehab, right? You probably stop squatting because now you're afraid of your knee because your whole system got really out of whack for that year, basically on one leg. Um, you developed imbalances everywhere that took you three years to correct anyway. And now you have one year of okay, and then we go back to the where we were on square one, where you could have fixed in one year at the beginning of it. But just because you chose surgery doesn't mean that it's over. Like, make no mistake, it's coming back. Yep. Well, when I came to see you, I just rehabbed my my back, you know, and that was one of the reasons. I mean, I remember doing the overhead yoke carry, and you showed me that my hips were off, and to this day, I'm still addressing it. But the kicker is I use foundation training and strong fit and chiropractic and the PT that I was put through, um, you know, all that combined was the, you know, the injury still there, but the, the strength was put back and, and it was rehab. My, I've got two firefighter friends from my old department, both of which had a surgery, which one of them has led to, I've, I've lost count how many surgeries that poor guy's had. And my other friend now is on his second so far and, you know, and we'll see. So, you know, it's heartbreaking because it was painful and it took a lot of work and it was in you know, the mental health side was horrendous too. But five months later, I was deadlift, deadlifting 225 for reps at a firefighter, you know, fundraiser. So, you know, that was the difference is, you know, and it, but it's still ongoing. Like if I stop doing all my exercise and movement practice well, stuff, it will start hurting you can, again. You cannot get weak. Like this is something that I know for my body. Uh, if I don't train a certain way hard and everything, my, my body will go to shit fast. Like I make, like for example, I know exactly how much work I will have to do till the way I die. And it's a lot. That's, you know, MMA, strongman, stuff like that. I have no injuries, nothing hurts. I have no, no injuries and nothing hurts because I train like a maniac almost every day. I haven't changed. Like 48, 38, no difference, right? And I don't look like I age much, but that's because of an amount of work in the back that is very, very high. I have no doubt that I will have to keep on doing that if I don't want to go to shit really fast. All right, so it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. I, I know I have to do certain things till the day I die if I want to have the lift that I want to have. But the trade-off is true the other way too. If you do those surgeries, don't think for a second you're out of the woods. That is not true. The second one is coming, and then the one after, and the one after, and the one after. And painkillers, back to risk of addiction. Like, don't, don't fool yourself. It's a trade-off. And I think mine is a lot easier to take over time than yours. Now, what about alcohol? I um, I recently have 
I guess struggled is the right word. So I, I drank frequently, didn't binge drink, but I drank frequently, like too much, you know, every single night, pretty much to wind down, quote unquote. Um, yeah. And I would do like a, a one, say again? It depends why you do it. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, it was it was too decompressed. But what I found is I would dry out for like a month and then I'd go right back into the same thing. So about two weeks ago, I had a total mind sh- mindset shift. It was it was very strange where I was like, okay, I'm not going to stop for a while. I'm just going to stop. Like I don't need, I mean, the only, like the missing piece of my wellness is alcohol. That's it. That's the one I've, I've talked about from day one on this podcast. And I finally was like, all right, whatever's happened, there's a shift there. And for me personally, I knew it was interfering with my sleep and many other things, which is the very core of what I'm trying to fix because I didn't have it for 14 years. So what if, what has been your kind of philosophy on alcohol and wellness? It's the same as everything. Um, it's like pre-workouts when you train. If you need a pre-workout to train, then you shouldn't take a pre-workout. If you don't need a pre-workout to train, then you can have one. Intent is the rule. If you do have a drink to decompress, don't have a drink. Decompress without a drink. If you don't need a drink, you can drink as much as you want. If you need one, you can't have one. That's it. Intent is everything. Uh, mine was uh, sugar. Not that I had a lot, but God knows uh, I like chocolate and stuff like that and everything. But what I realized, my reason to quit was that because it makes me very negative. I have very negative thought patterns when I have sugar. And there's a study that was shown, that was done on women. that were, they were shown that women that had uh, gut flora based more toward the prevotella, which is the bacteria of the gut flora that are more toward processing sugar and carbs, those women had a more emotional reaction to negative images. They had the same reaction to positive images as the other one, but they had a stronger emotional reaction to negative images. So it was shown that the prevotella, the gut flora that processed sugar and carbs, had a direct effect on the, on the build of the brain where the gray matter was more developed and a different and a specific uh, interaction with the hippocampus, so with behavior modification. So it was a very interesting study because I can tell you from my own experience and some of my clients that sugar gives me a negative thought pattern. So I love chocolate. I love sweet stuff. But at some point, it was a simple choice. This is making me into someone I don't like. So which one do I do? Do I, do I go for the taste or do I go to be who I want to be? And at some point, and it wasn't easy, don't get me wrong. Uh, took me two years with at least eight times failed. But the one that really I made the choice, I was in, I remember I was in Amsterdam, we went to Belgium and I had 10 truffles. Like, trust me, 10 truffles is kids play compared to how much chocolate I can eat. And I was negative and stressed out for three days straight. Three days of a negative feeling I could not escape, almost like an emotional reaction. And I was like, this is bananas. Like, I was fine yesterday. And right now, I just can't get rid of that feeling. And I couldn't. And I, it was almost like a physical feeling. And that was the eighth time. And at that time, I was like, all right, I'm done. So now I got 90% dark chocolate, and that's it. Because the second I have sugar, it changes my thought patterns. It doesn't matter. That's what happens. So I don't have it. So alcohol for me is the same thing. It depends on intent. You can have alcohol as long as you don't need it. If you use alcohol for anything other than getting a buzz and uh, getting shit-faced with your friends, then you can't have it. 
Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's that's it. I mean, I, I th- the crazy thing is for me, my body always told me I don't like alcohol because I would have a drink or two. And this is, you know, but genuinely what I normally have. I don't like being any more than a slight buzz. But the next day I'd feel like, you know, what other people reported they had when they had 10 drinks, you know. So that's the crazy thing. And I, and I don't think it was even, I mean, I wasn't trying to forget. I wasn't trying to sleep. I think it was more just habitual. When you're in this three-day cycle of firefighter shifts. It doesn't matter. It's, yeah, it's a way to decompress, which means you never learn to let go exactly. of it yourself. There's always a price to pay and it creates a sympathetic reaction. And there's other things that will impact you a certain way. And the most important of all is it has control of you. Exactly. Well, it did. Because, like I said, something something went off. It's, it's crazy, but it did, which is which is amazing. Because I haven't just went to a winery the other day. I had dinner with my in-laws and surrounded by wine, which is my favorite drink, and nothing. So, well, this, as long as that stays, we were good. I'm sure it will. I want to get into strong fit, though. So we've put the world to to rights as far as uh, many topics. But what what kind of new philosophies? Because I know you're a mad scientist and constantly evolving. Um, have the last like 18 months or so brought? Oh my God, like uh, there's been a lot because I started to look at the the effects of lactate. So there was, so I've been always fascinated by the sympathetic, the fight and flight response because first of all, fight and flight are not the same. They are very different. And like, all right, so a lot of the issues seems to happen when you go from fight to flight. And I was like, how do we avoid that? And it's not just a mental stuff. I was looking at the physiological side of things. And you started to see a relationship between lactate and the orexing neurons. So long story short, that was very important because uh, one of the, in the brain, so lactate is the main fuel in the body and especially in the brain. No, it's not a waste product. It's actually a fuel, but it's the main fuel for the brain. And uh, the orexing neurons are, based right in the center or all that toward uh, dictating the production of lactate. And what was fascinating with the orexin neurons is they were also responsible for the production of noradrenaline. Noradrenaline happens to be the main uh, neurotransmitter of the sympathetic nervous system. And what's also fascinating about that is you find noradrenaline at the center of anxiety, depression, for example, the symptoms of schizophrenia, the symptoms of anxiety and depression, the symptoms of uh, bipolar issues. So they seem to be a, some kind of a loop between the orexin neurons and noradrenaline and lactate. So I started to look at that because I wanted to see if lactate production could be linked to um, the psychological aspect of things. Obviously, it's linked to the physiological, but I was like, so what is the impact of the psychological effect of lactate? Because everybody looks at it from a physiological perspective, but there had to be an effect on the physiological. So is the the psychological, sorry, driving lactate or vice versa? Well, it turns out they're linked. So it would take me a while to explain why I came to that conclusion, but what I discovered is that it's a threat to the sense of self produces huge amount of lactate. So it's not any threat. It has to be a threat to the sense of self that does that. So I had some clients that I measure waking up, waking up in the morning over 20 millimole of lactate, which is something that is what they call the lactate threshold, which is not 
but that's another problem, that would send you to the hospital. And that created some very interesting conversation. First of all, when you say sense of self, it gets complicated because what does that even mean? Because if you look in the sense of self, we have me and I. Me feel this, I go to the market, right? Well, it turns out me and I are not the same parts of the brain. They're actually completely different. So we should not put me and I as part of the sense of self. It doesn't work like that. Me is on the left ventromedial uh, prefrontal cortex, whereas I is more toward the right anterior insula. So they're not, part of, they're not even part of the same part of the brain. They don't even involve the same networks. So me and I are actually things that are completely different. And to go a step further, it turns out that me is actually, so when we talk about the sense of self, what is the purpose of the sense of self? From a philosophical perspective, that's a long conversation. But if you look, we start to go to what I think therefore I am. What I saw through a number of things is like the me part of the sense of self is actually part of the threat assessment system that you have a sense of threat like this, but when the me comes about is when the, the threat becomes deep. And at that moment, when the threat becomes deep and then the me gets engaged is when you go from fight to flight. And that's the moment where we see the lactate shooting up. So it was important, for example, in what they call a lactate threshold, it has nothing to do with an anaerobic reaction because lactate is produced aerobically. The lactate threshold, like that's, that spike of lactate, happens because of a sense of threat toward the me part of the sense of self. So it turns out that the sense of identity that we have is part of our threat assessing system. That is the purpose of identity, of a sense of identity, is to have a more evolved sense of threat so that we can live in, in a society where threats are becoming more subtle in nature. That's a very long conversation. Yeah, no, and it's, you know, I'm just trying to kind of process what you told me as well. So are you seeing a correlation then, for example, uh, a, a low consistent level of lactate that should be much lower if we'd actually deregulate it, but because we've got stress in the modern world versus being you so know, in full? when you see people with a constantly low levels of lactate, you see someone who's depressed. When you see someone with a, so you'll see anxious people, they walk around at six, eight, right? Whereas you see the constant level, uh, low level of lactate around one is more toward the depressed side. It gets more complicated than that, obviously, because that's only one of the markers. Like when we start to talk about stuff like that, there's 15 different markers. But the levels of lactate allow me, so it's not so much that the lactate at 10 says something, is that I'm going to look at your baseline of four weeks. Right, And I see that after each training session, you are 10, 12, 10, 12, 10, 12. And then one of them, you are 22. That's what we look at. So I don't really look at, at the level of lactate. I look at when it doesn't fit into your normal patterns. Normally, you wake up at 2, 3, then one day you wake up at 1. That means the day before, something crashed you. You have a workout that takes you to 20 instead of 12. Maybe it's a workout itself, but maybe you feel threatened in the workout. I had a client like that, that usually after a CrossFit workout, went around the 8-10, not the most athletic, obviously. Those are fairly low levels of lactate for a hard workout, but that's normal for her and everything. And suddenly, three workouts in four weeks, in six weeks, and she was at over 18. And I'm like, all right, so why? What happened? We start digging. 
And she tells me, oh, because people were watching me, I was at a competition. I'm like, all right, social anxiety. But turns out that's one workout. The other two, she was in the gym with no one around. So I was like, all right, that's not that. I start looking at the programming of the workout. And all three workouts, she did overhead stuff with a jerk form. And I'm like, uh-huh. I talked to her coach and I'm like, let me guess. Let me guess. She goes to her traps all the time. She's like, yeah, how do you know? So I go back to the client and I'm like, tell me something. Does your neck hurt? And she's like, I can take it. I was like, that's not what I asked. I didn't ask if you could take it. I'm not questioning your toughness. I asked, does your neck hurt? And she goes, well, yeah, when I press overhead, I feel it in my traps after my neck hurts. She's like, is that what happened on those three workouts? And she was like, maybe. And then, so it turned out that what happens is when she goes overhead, especially with the jerks and stuff like that, CrossFit style, she, her neck hurts right after that's a sense of threat to her because when she feels her neck, she feels she won't be able to train anymore and she needs training to stay stable. So the cap her capacity to train is associated with her capacity to be able to stay stable and good raising her kids and with her husband and everything. So anything that threatens, in that case, physical pain like the neck, threatens her family life. That's a real threat. So how did I know I was right? Simple. I made her press a sandbag. Five sets of five, engaging the pecs, lactate levels, eight. Do a jerk, two days later, five sets of five, lactate is at 20. She didn't feel the neck on the sandbag. She felt the neck on the push jerks. Why? Because the neck means something. What does it mean? It means her life goes to shit. Not her training goes to shit. Her life goes to shit because her neck hurts. She can't train. She loses her mind. She can't raise her kids. She can't be good with her husband. It doesn't have to make sense to others. It doesn't have to be a rational fear. It just has to be a threat to your sense of identity, a threat on the sense of me. And that's what going overhead was. And that's what the lactate ended up at 20. See, that's, that's fascinating to me. So you say you've got an athlete whose lactate is elevated greater than it should be or depressed great or lower than it should be now talk to me about what kind of uh uh exercise you'd bring in to help modulate that if if it's exercise at all well it can be but the key is to identify where the threat is coming from right like for example if it's that lady who's feeling your neck then i know like I cannot do an exercise that will make her go to her traps too much and press on the neck and her feel pain. That means that I can go overhead if I want to, but the constraint is she can never feel her neck. So that means that, for example, I'm going to program sandbag presses for a while, but not push jerks with a barbell until she has developed the correct mobility to put something overhead without going too much to the traps and hurting her neck. You know what I mean? So then suddenly it changes your programming, not in the sense of the movement itself, but in the sense of how it is perceived. So it's all a matter of understanding what the threat is and then it's using exposure therapy to make sure that they have a normal response to it and not an acute response to it. So the problem is not that you don't like feeling your neck. Who does? The problem is that you have an over-exaggerated response to it. You're taking it as a threat to your identity where really what it is is too much traps. So the problem is not the threat. The problem is how you react to the threat. And in that case, way too hard. Way, way, way too hard. So I had that with people like stupid stuff, like 
cardio with people around them, or like there's, there's many different types of anxiety because there's many different types of threat to your identity. So the question is to recognize what those are so that they can be avoided because they put you in flight, which does not let you train the way you want. So that means that sometimes your performance is limited physiologically, not just psychologically, physiologically by a threat that you perceive to your identity that will shoot your light take up, which will shut down your body at some point because you cannot produce that much fuel and that much energy without having a reaction physiologically. There's a price to pay for producing so much fuel. Glycolysis, glycolysis produces ATP that turns into ADP, but then that, that releases a lot of protons that can raise the acidity of the body and shit like that. There's a physiological price that you have to pay into being threatened by an exercise or workout. So Jeff Nichols, a Navy SEAL and pretty um, well-respected uh, strength and conditioning coach in the tactical space, was the first one that made me realize that, you know, if I'm coming off shift and, you know, we've had our ass handed to us, maybe we've seen or done some, you know, some stuff that that uh, emotionally and spiritually is exhausting. And then we come back off shift. You know, the old mentality used to be, well, I'm going to go sweat it out. I'm going to go, you know, do, do a red line CrossFit workout and get rid of all that stress. Well, his whole thing was, no, you're adding more stress. So it would be interesting taking a police officer or firefighter who's just come off a shift and then does that kind of, of uh, exercise. And I guarantee you probably see high lactate go into even higher yeah. lactate rather yeah. than deregulate. But that's the thing. It will depend because you remember you saw some nasty shit that didn't affect you that much. And then you saw some stuff that were maybe not even nearly as nasty that affected you a lot. Because one was a threat to your sense of self, the other one wasn't. It depends. So that's what I like with the lactate testing is it told me like that particular stress, don't go red line. That one, you're fine. That one, you cannot. If you're this that touches you for so many reasons, background, genetics, uh, culture, like there can be many, many different reasons, but there's a certain things that will threaten you in a way that means that you cannot redline on top of that. You're already way too far in the stress. It will depend on not the, what the threat was, but how it was perceived. Perception creates reality. You're just doing like a blood, like almost like a glucometer, but a lactate test with a prick of blood on the finger. And the key, what you're looking at is patterns, right? So it's not necessarily a number. It's the number versus the other. You take your number every, every time you see uh, when your shift ends and you're going to end up with a certain number, right? You're tired and everything. Maybe it's high. Maybe it's eight or whatever. But the key is some of those shifts, and then you're going to see 14, you're going to see 16, you're gonna, you might even see 20, or, uh, which is very, very high. And uh, those are the numbers where you go, why? Because that particular shift got to you versus the other ones. They're all taxing. You're, all, you're always tired. But some of them get to you. The question is finding out why, because that's the threat. That's the one you can't cope with, and that's the one you have to be extremely careful of. That type of stress is, is literally physiologically dangerous to you. Well, the thing, the, the one correlation I saw where, where the stress would be high when we didn't sleep, when we were literally call after call, and they may not even be, you know, super high stress calls, but you're just, you know, getting back to the station, lying down for 10 minutes, and then boom, the, the alarms go off again, and now you go again. So it'll be interesting to see. Not even so much the the actual call itself, but just that that um, 
stress your, state over and over again. Your emotional reaction is much higher. Like we all know that when we don't sleep, we're grumpy. Our emotional reaction is much, much higher. Yeah. And all that relates to a, it's a threat assist, assessing system in place that we have. And there's, there seems to be different levels to it. And the highest level is me is under threat. That's a whole different ballgame. Then I'm under threat. That's fine. Physically, I'm cool. It's like, oh, something did. Me under threat. That's a whole different ballgame. Now, I wonder as well, I mean, I'm just kind of trying to break down, you know, all the, the different things that you're telling me. Organizational stress is another huge one. So that lack of control that you know, we're seeing, obviously, internationally That's as well. Like, but I mean, that could be a thing that gets to you. Absolutely. It seems to. I mean, it seems to be like the real kind of elephant in the room. Sleep deprivation is one, but also that element that you know, when you're being micromanaged, where, for example, you're a firefighter or a police officer being told that if you don't take a vaccine, you're going to be fired. That is a threat to, to, to self because yeah, your whole livelihood is being... Care. Yeah, some won't care. Is, and to some, it'll be a tremendous threat. Some will be like, yeah, whatever, man, it's a vaccine. And you go, really? And to others, it's like, fuck, no, like that's a threat to who I am. And that's why people take it such, in such a personal way because to them, it is literally a threat to their sense of self. And that one will make everything spike. And now you're in flight. And the physiological stress in those cases is monumental but like we see it and you have to understand that 20 millimole number is very important it's been shown that um when you have uh, that co that concentration in the brain it disrupts it disrupts the brain the brain wave especially the the gamma brain wave which is responsible for keeping the networks in place so that means that a certain level of production of lactate in your brain you literally cannot think straight anymore like the networks are being disturbed because there's too much energy being pumped well when you're also talking about sense of self i mean this is another rabbit hole i always seem to go down when when you're on the show one thing that people struggle with as well when they transition out of the first responder professions or the military is that sense of self that that identity well i'm i'm a firefighter i'm james gearing i'm a firefighter and i'm not i'm james gearing who happens to be a firefighter um so when you have let's say you're fired let's say you get hurt again there's another you know, a threat to that sense of self there too, because sometimes your idea of who you are, your idea of self is actually wrong anyway. Right. And that's the problem with the sense of self is it's built over many layers. And if you start to build it around a career or stuff like that, um, when that career is threatened to being taken away, then they take away your sense of self. Hence the reaction the stressful reaction because suddenly it's not the job you take away. It's a direct attack on your identity. And that, that feels physically bad because that's the greater sense of threat. You have to understand where the sense of threat comes from. We used to be snakes or even before that, the snake is simple. He has a bubble. You enter the bubble, it's a threat, he bites you. That's easy. That's a simple thing, right? And then as you start to evolve to our primates, we need to live in tribes. All right, so now it's not that the guy next to me is a threat. Well, maybe, maybe not. How do I know? I need to talk to him. All right, so I need to talk to him. That means I need control of the muscle of my face. Otherwise, he's going to think I'm a danger to him. So I need to be able to smile. So that's the vagus nerve, giving you control of certain muscles in your face so you can smile and say, hey, I'm not dangerous. But it turns out that when you live with 8 billion people, some people are dangerous at times, and at others, you need them. 
All right, so which one is which? He's my boss. Do I like him or do I hate him? If I hate him too much, he's going to fire me. And then I, so suddenly your sense of threat has to be extremely subtle, flexible, and being able to evaluate that something at any moment. Right, so that's, evolutionary speaking, that requires a lot of energy and a lot of moving parts and processing power. And that's why the sense of me is developing in concordance with the complexity of society is because it is your sense of threat that allows you to live in society. So that means that the job of the sense of me is literally to go, not that one. And there's a physiological response when it's being threatened because that's the human equivalent of the sympathetic reaction of the snake, but in a very, very complex situation. So that's why certain threats you're fine with, others you're not. It's very, very complex and it's built over so many things. That's why, like a sense of threat, man, is that's why you, I look at patterns of the lactate and I can't give you a number because it depends on not so much on what the threat is, it depends on how it's perceived. And that's based on a lot of things. Culture being one of them. Fascinating. I mean, it just, it, the rabbit holes we go down, one of the things that I still talk about to this day was, I think it was probably the last conversation we had, but when we were talking about mental health and you were talking about fight, flight, flow, and freeze, and how freeze describes perfectly that acceptance of people who are suicidal and, and they report of being almost in flow, like they're happy again, just because they've come to terms with taking their own lives. They let go. Yeah. Yeah, and you have dynorphin, that is a hormone that gets right in there that we see that is that shut up button. You know, even when animals are getting eaten alive and they have that completely blank expression on their faces. I don't know if you've seen, like I, I follow like nature is metal on Instagram. I do too. And there was, oh my God, um, it's so gnarly sometimes. But you have that video of that impala being eaten alive by wild dogs. And it's like this, it's completely blank. Yeah, nature has found a way to not prolong the torture where at that stage it's gone. It's an acceptance of death. You pump down off in, the first thing happens, you don't feel pain anymore, just shuts off everything. Because you're dead, you just don't know it yet. And so a lot of time when there's a true acceptance of death, as the samurai, the Japanese culture talked about, it's almost, it's a moment of enlightenment, depending on where, where you go with it. Like if you truly accept death, like that's the Zen Sunni masters and everything, but this acceptance of death can lead to a mo moment of enlightenment because you're truly in flow, because the circle goes back the other way. Yeah, well, what makes it tragic is when that has, when you've got to that point through mental ill health, through sleep deprivation, through trauma, through all these things. Um, yeah, then it's a completely different conversation. And that's what's so sad. So with this conversation about lactate and, you know, you've got HRV and some other tools, every single thing that we have that layers on this understanding, you know, that kind of backs up the the different pillars that create either mental and physical health or mental and physical ill health. And, you know, this, this threat to self is another great concept that's going in my toolbox of all these different ways that we can identify things that might lead us down a path to anxiety, depression, and God forbid, yeah, suicide. The, because the first thing they showed me is that there is a massive physiological response to a true sense of threat. But not, again, not physical, like I have to fight the bear, like a, this touch me as to who I am. You can have a massive physiological response. 
massive. That is, your lactate response might be higher than you're ever going to produce during a workout, to give you an idea. And you're doing it at rest. And you're doing it, so it's like spending two hours doing a sled sprint workout a day for some people, just because they had a fight with their boss. So imagine physiologically what that would mean if I made you do a three-hour-a-day uh, sprint workout. Imagine what physiologically it would produce. Well, imagine if you do that just on the sense of threat. Imagine the impact that it could have. And that's what I see with that. Is the, it, I think it is vastly, vastly underrated, the physiological response to certain type of stress, because stress is such a perception-based thing in that case. A sense of threat to your identity is completely perception-based. It's not based on rational thing. It's not based on, you know, the bear is attacking me. It's not that. It has to do with your sense of identity. And that's built around different pillars for everybody. Yeah, and it changes. I mean, that's that's what's so sad. I mean, I see people who, you know, I talk about this a lot, who are on the draw ground of whatever profession, military, police, fire, and you know, they're young, fit, healthy men and women. They may have some trauma they brought in, they may not, but, you know, they are resilient, you know, and then you start layering on all these things that happen in our job. And our jobs, I mean, I adore the fire service, but there are many, many areas that set us up for failure when it comes to mental longevity and, and physical health as well. And so, you know, now this perceived stress starts to change and, and you go from, you know, a sheepdog in your community to feeling like a burden, and then you end yeah. up with the tragedy that we just had in Florida a few weeks ago where a husband and wife, law enforcement couple, within a few days of each other, both took their own lives separately. One did, and then the other one, I'm sure, was crushed, and then she did, leaving behind a four-month-old girl. So, Ooh. you know, that that Ooh. that kind of what we call normal thinking isn't normal thinking. And people on the outside, well, how could you do that to a baby? Well, you're thinking with a well-slept, you know, normal brain – these men and women through trauma and all these other layers, their brain has shifted to, you know, when we're talking oh. about sense of self, their sense of self is completely fucking different than a lot of other people that don't do the jobs that they did. And you see that, in, especially with the murder-suicide st stuff like that, you see people that truly believe that the people would be better off if they died. Their brain is not at the same level. And again, there's a level of lactate in the brain at which the brain behaves differently. It's been shown time and time again. Those bursts of energy that the, uh, that the lactate uh, uh, bring uh, modify the way the network, so the way the connection of the brain works on a physiological level. And so your brain literally will be different at certain levels of lactate. So if you were, one were to abuse that, you would change from a physiological perspective, the way you think, because you change your networks. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's that's what we're seeing. I mean, you know, we're just completely misswired mis yeah, brains. Yeah. It's not just like psychological. It turns out the two are linked on the physiological level much, much deeper than we understand. Well, Julia, I mean, we've, we've talked about so many different things. I want to shift to what, you know, StrongFit is doing this next year, so I can be mindful of your time. So... Are you going to be doing the kind of face-to-face -face clinics again in 2022? Yeah, yeah, I'm starting at the end of this month, actually. I'm going, uh, I'm leaving for the U.S. in four days. I'm going to uh, Seattle. So I, I like being online, but I want to go back and explain to, you know, things to people directly. So I have a um, 
seminar in Seattle. Then I'm going to go to LA. And then I should be coming to Florida in uh, late April, I think. Oh, okay. Have you got a venue already? Uh, most likely, uh, shit. Um, was it Tampa, I think, or something like that? Because I was set up before. And then so I promised to go, but then with the pandemic, I couldn't. So I have, I have to go at least there this time. Brilliant. Well, I'm only just over an hour from Tampa. So I'm going to make sure. I, so I'm only just over an hour from Tampa. So I'm going to have to make sure I get my ass over there. Yeah, that'd be cool. Well, I haven't seen you face-to-face -face in a long time. No, no, not since Torrance. That was years ago. <laughs> that was a long time ago. <laughs> so if you, if you just want to tell people again, you know, what you guys are offering as far as the, you know, the... Just go to strongfit.com. Like, go there, I explain everything on the website, and then see if you like what I say. We'll see. Beautiful. All right, and you can listen to the multiple episodes that we've had prior to this too. Exactly. So do that. <laughs> All right. So just to wrap up then, I'll ask you the same questions I did last time. First one, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to our multiple areas of discussion today or something completely different. You know what I would say? I'm going to answer, but it'll be differently than a book. Um, never stop reading. So I don't care if it's science fiction. Never stop reading because it's a muscle that will atrophy if you do. And you do not understand how important for your brain it is to read. Like you process information so much better when you do. So read stuff that you like. And one of the greatest book, science fiction book there is, is Dune. Don't watch the movie. I don't know it's good. It's visually stunning. Read the book. Read the book, then watch the movie. You'll enjoy the movie five times as much. You cannot watch the movie if you haven't read the book because it's so complex. You, you just... You missed more than half the movie if you didn't read the book first. Brilliant. All right. Well, that's great. I mean, one of my, my friends, Josh Brolin, was in that movie, so uh, I know he was very proud of it, but yeah. Fuck yeah. Plus, come on. He's, he's, he's one, of the, one of the biggest badasses in the entire Dune universe. He's Gurney Halleck. He's such a badass. Like, I'm sure he was happy. I would be so happy to be Gurney Halleck. You don't understand. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of that, so so the movie June, any other movies or documentaries that you love to recommend? I haven't seen. Honestly, I don't watch. I don't watch TV. I don't watch movies. I don't watch documentaries. I'm I'm away from all this as much as I can. I just read, man. Like it's the more I go, the the more I distress all of this. I am tired of those movies telling me how to think, who I should be, like. Like they're all turning toward that woke bullshit left and right, and I just can't take it anymore. So I'm barely watching anything. The last documentary that I saw that I love was Ramen Heads. That, you know, like the documentary about that ramen noodle uh, chef in, in Japan. Japan. Yes. Uh, that dude is completely insane. It's awesome. I love ramen too. So I did watch it. Oh, I have to say, so I was a little grossed out by all the dead shit that they were boiling in the back. <laughs> Right, but that, that dude is completely insane. And like the craftsmanship was just won me over, but it's completely insane. It was awesome. That it's stuff like that I love watching, but honestly, I stay away from all that stuff as much as I can. I just, the influence, Hollywood is responsible for more ill in the American society than people understand. Yeah, I talk about it a lot with the, the perception of masculinity. The biggest influence of U.S. 
not even in the US, in the world. It's not bonds, it's not money, it's Hollywood. And he has done the same within the US as well. He has shaped the American culture since the 60s, not in a, not in a good way on many things. And for example, yes, how men are seen today and everything. You want to get rid of strong men. Wait till weak men are in charge, like you see happening now. Are you happy with the results? And make no mistake, this is why. You have weak men in charge. And ladies, I don't think you like it either. Yeah. Well, conversely, I think one of the other things that I talk about a lot is you had these kind of two-dimensional facades of strong men, the Rambos and, you know, fucking Terminators and all that. I mean, then I'm sure the actors are great, but that's not what a man is, you know, and I, I point but, to this all even, the time. And even that is seen as, you know, like patriarchy and all of that. We're just slowly but surely chopping at the idea of a man that is strong. It's a mistake. Those are the ones building society. We don't manage it. That's what women do women make a house a home but someone has to build a house too and keep it running once you get rid of strong men and you give power to if you think strong men are bad boy wait till you see what weak men can do that's jordan pearson who said that and i happen to agree completely mm-hmm. well i think the facade is that the strong men have no emotion that there's no yeah. yan to the yin you know and it's like the strong men are men they are compassionate and kind and care and, and empathetic and so if you try and be this facade of a strong man you're going to end up in you know staring at a bottle or a, or a pill bottle there's simple numbers to look at look at the families that do not have a father figure in the center the kids do significantly worse those are numbers it can be looked at you don't have to believe me on this look at the numbers girls and boys without father around do worse society stuff like drug addiction shit like that there's just we need men too we don't not just women we need men as well we have to stop with the idea that gender war bullshit coming out of hollywood is a bad idea we are team it's not we need both sides men but we all say like behind every great man is a great woman a woman will break or make a man like all men know this we need women Equality is not the same thing as similarity. It's just not the same. We can be equal and not the same. It's not the same thing. Yeah. Well, I like the phrase, it takes a village too. You know, outside of just the home, the community. And I think that's something that we've lost, the, the tribe that you talked about. You know, imagine imagine a tribe where tribe member Steve tried to take all the money. He'd end up strung up to a tree. But we allow it in modern society. Yeah. That's a huge mistake. Absolutely. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Uh, that you haven't had yet? <laughs> you, would, you would get burned at the stake if you could get Jordan Peterson on your podcast. I would love to see it. And my guess is not everybody would be happy. He gets so much shit for people that really do not listen to what he's saying like to say that the guy is transphobic is ridiculous but um, he's one of the deepest thinkers when it comes to psychology uh, that i've listened to in a long time and his recent the his uh, recent uh, recent struggles with benzos with you know anti-anxiety pills would be a great subject and how poorly the medical industry knows how to deal 
with something like benzodiazepines, addiction and issues and side effects. And like almost no one knew how to deal with it. It was his story. He had a podcast where his daughter explained what he went through. It's a crazy story. Well, to their credit, I mean, I got a response immediately. It was, uh, you know, thank you, but we can't at this time, which I am more than happy. It's the getting ghosted people that that, that drives me crazy. But so that was uh, probably, I don't know, a year and a half, two years ago now. So I need to circle around and just just try again. I mean, you know, as as the podcast grows, the, the likelihood of getting yeses, I think, improves. So I, I will try yeah, again. You never know, right? But he's, um, he's an important voice because... Like he's still trying to have reasonable conversations with the other side that is just not reasonable in its argumentation. And so it's important to hear that side as well. Like you can all stick with the walk side and everybody's yeah, kumbaya. And you know, you can be as fat as you want, don't worry, it has no side, it has no side effects. Or you can talk to people, you might not agree, you might not like it, that's fine, but we still need both sides. Yeah, no, I agree completely, and I've had both sides on here many, many times. You know, I mean, but what you do is that yeah, but you have that commonality, and that's what people don't discuss. Like those those disagreements are usually the the ten percent on each side of our entire philosophical world. Like it's, I uh, can't remember who said that. Was it Mark? No, it wasn't Marcus Aurelius. He was either a Greek or a Roman. We said the intelligence is the capacity to entertain a thought without accepting it. That's the sign of a trained mind. Yeah, Sounds great. <laughs> but that's the true sign of a trained mind. Can you entertain a thought without accepting it? And the answer is apparently not. Yeah, but again, triggered. You don't have to accept it. You're just thinking about it. But it seems people are incapable of doing that. It seems like it's a disease that they let entering in. That tells me you haven't read that tells me you have not read philosophy as you should have at 18, that you have not trained your mind. The Stoic have a lot to say about it, and they were mostly right. Absolutely. All right. Well, I will, like I said, I will certainly try and get him on. I, mean, I have before, and I will circle around again. So the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you, aside from the website, um, what do you do to decompress? Is there anything new that you found the last couple of years? I live in Rio. There's a beach, a local beach right there. It's kind of a private beach. Only the locals know about it. It's called Joachinga. It's one of the most gorgeous places there is. We go there. I'm decompressing in 30 seconds of being there. It is such a gorgeous place. But that's Rio. Like these trails along here where you just walk around the view, the forest. We went to a, we went to a waterfall. It's 10 minutes driving from here. We're walking there. We're going through the waterfall. It's gorgeous. There's a beautiful snake passing by, like as green as the foliage. I'm good, man. Life is easy. I'm, life is easy for me. I, it's easy here. Now, with that threat to, to self, when you think of Rio, sometimes you think about some of the poverty and some of the crime over there. What have you seen with that element and, you know, with the, the pandemic through your eyes in 2022? Oh, nearly as bad as people make it. Is there poverty? Yes, there is. I live in Africa. There was some there, was some there too. There's, is there inequalities here? Tremendously. It's inequality of knowledge. That's where it is. Like the problem is the education system more than the money. Uh, people here that can't read or write, the, the, the rate of illiteracy here is actually fairly high. The education system is the problem. And 
the violence, yeah, no, it's violent, sure, but there's places in LA where I wouldn't go either. Uh, it's the violence you see is usually um, two gangs fighting each other. That's where people get shot. It's things like that. Where I am is very safe. It's very, usually it's uh, between gang members around drug areas where uh, it's being sold and where gangs fight and stuff like It's actually not the way the Western media portrays Brazil. It's not like that. It's just portrayed a very, very specific way. It's like when you see France in Hollywood movies, man, it's the same shit. Like Brazil, they want it to be a favela where everybody's packing guns and ready to shoot left and right. Are there places like that? Yeah, just like some people carry a baguette in Paris and have a beret. Yes, that's true. <laughs> some people look like a cliche of the Parisian. That is very true. And some of us do sit at cafes, terraces, watching people walk by. Totally, that is true. But that's not all of Paris. There's actually people having normal lives as well. Brazil is that too. Is you find the same people everywhere wanting the same thing. Just the scenery changes. But a lot of things here, here they outside of wearing a mask, they have no lockdown whatsoever. Zero. People go out, we went to the movies, there are parties. So they don't have uh, nightclubs because they're closed, but they have bars where people dance. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's the same shit. So, is there poverty? Yes, there is, but it's poverty of education, mostly. Yeah, which is interesting as well, because when you look at, again, this kind of tyranny of the past, that's the first thing they attack is the education. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one. That, that, the biggest tyranny of, it's not money, it's education. You want to keep people down, that's what you do. Their capacity, I see it here in Rio, their capacity to process information is much lower than what I see in Europe. And that means that responses are much more emotional. They need emotion to do things. So they need to create emotions as a fuel to do things instead of going sometimes through a rational uh, argumentation instead. That's the difference. And that is a poverty of education first. And that's how you keep people down. It's education, not money. You can give them whatever money they want. They'll spend it on shit or stuff. Like a lot of stuff when you see favela, they look like shit. They don't have to. Coat of paint. Stuff like that. They could take care of it. They just don't do it. Like you see that here, like we're talking about, you know, ecotourism. This, this place is the worst. I'm at the waterfall. Some people fucking left, and it's only locals, left like beer bottles in the corner. They just went to eat and left all their shit there. Beer bottles, stuff, plastic, they don't give a shit. But that's just, that's not being an asshole. That's not, yeah, you can find it is. But it's not money-based. That's education-based. Like, dude, don't do that. Don't do that. Like, that's just, it's not, don't do that. Like, that's processing of information. I mean, yeah. Well, I find that the, the, the education on kindness and compassion is something that's missing. Like, understanding the why. Even I wrote about this in my book. You think about driving. In, in Florida, you take this bullshit test, you drive around the back of a parking lot, basically, and then they give you, you know, the, the license. Now you can go murder people in your steel death trap. But they don't teach the why. Like, why do you have you know x amount of car lengths between you and the car why do you use your blinker when you understand that it's being kind and compassionate and therefore it makes it safer and therefore people don't die then it would resonate deeper but it's just that the kind of box checking that we see even you know in the fire service too you know we don't have training we just 
go to training, they check the box and they say, well, you had training versus, you know, spend multiple attempts to really understand the craft and, and you know, and, and kind of absorb that lesson. So that's what I see with a lot of that. It's, it's, it's selfishness through ignorance, you know, and it's not the people that woke up and go, I'm going to be an asshole and leave my litter everywhere today. It's just no one really like grabbed him by the collar and said, look, this is the impact. Someone, has, Someone's going to fucking pick that up or a bird's going to choke on it or it's going to blow into the bushes or whatever. But every every ripple effect of what you just did is negative. Right. And that's that's the tyranny of lack of education. That's why I see all the time in, in all my travels is always that is the the level of education will decide so many things. It's crazy. It's so much lower. It's crazy. It is. It is indeed. And that's what Sebastian Junger talks about too, is you know, where there's there seems to be the most like happiness when you when you measure it on whatever metrics they use, is the the smallest gap between the most wealthy and, and the least wealthy. And then where there's the greatest divide is where there's the greatest, you know, um, you know, depression, anxiety, and, and overall unhappiness. So when you look at how we're being drawn, we're being pulled apart. And, you know, the, the highest kind of affluence is, is a, a, a grand canyon from the poverty and the homelessness that exists in the same country. I think that, like they always say Brazil, 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 but look at the U.S. now. Like it's, like it's easy to, I love when the media decides that Brazil is the, you know, is the center fold for last of I'm like, did you see what San Francisco looks like? Because I was there a bunch of times and I've never seen so many clearly insane people, like medically insane people. Like those people are dangerous. Like, you know, they're crazy. You can tell schizophrenia full effect. Uh, I've never seen so many of them on the street. Like it's crazy. Like all the homelessness problem that they have, whether San Francisco, LA and everything is like, like you're looking at countries and, and, and making fun of them and everything, but just, I mean, like, it's not doing so well right now. No. Well, I appreciate your perspective. I mean, obviously, you know, you're from France originally. And as you said, you've lived in multiple countries all over the world, multiple continents. Um, so, you know, it's always so important, I think, to ask people who are actually there, whether it's a soldier that was in Afghanistan or whether it's a strength and conditioning, excuse me, strength and conditioning guru who lives in, in Rio de Janeiro. Um, you know, this, this removes all the sensationalism and just gets a perspective from a normal human being that lives amongst a certain group of people. I can, for me, all the country that I've seen, it's crazy how the level of education affects the culture. It's crazy. Take it for someone who was in Africa, where they, because of the Jesuits, they have actually a very good education system where I was in Africa and you could see, like, it's just, the differences are crazy. Beautiful. So people, if they obviously want to go to strongfit.com for all the information on Strongfit, where else online, social media, the best place to follow you uh, or reach out to? Yeah, Strongfit1 on Instagram. Otherwise, that's it. It's a website on Instagram on Strongfit1. Brilliant. Well, Julian, I want to say thank you so much. We've been chatting for another two hours. Um, you know, we've gone all over the place. So I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure.